Live from WNUR News, I'm Iris Swarthout. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 Evanston, Chicago. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. Tonight on WNUR News, input from Northwestern's Mayfest Productions team on the setup of Dillo Day. A rerun of an episode on post-concert depression. A window into queer history. And a Northwestern sports roundup. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. One of the largest student-run music festivals, Dillo Day, is coming up this Saturday, May 21st. Ready to listen to good music, enjoy yummy food, and just have fun? Follow reporter Jangun Jennifer Kim to hear more from the Mayfest Productions team. Students get ready for Northwestern's tradition Dillo Day, coming up this Saturday, May 21st. Co-directors of promotions Nicole Tank and Connor Metz say students should prepare to have fun. I mean, the fact that it's happening in person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is our first in-person Dillo in in, um, in three years, so we're really really excited to see um, kind of the return of May or the return of Dillo Day to campus. Um, the great thing about Dillo Day is like hopefully there's something for everyone. Um, food and games and other activities, kind of just you know a choose-your-own-adventure type situation. Mayfest Productions announced Remy Wolf as the headliner and Cochise as the main stage performer this year. The decisions were based off of a few reasons. Yeah, so a lot of that comes from our bookings committee, um, but we also send out yearly artist polls to the student body. This year we actually did two, which was very exciting. Um, and those polls ask students what kind of genres they're most interested in. So they use like data and information that they're able to gather from those polls and then as well as their own expertise. Mayfest Productions is a student organization divided into 10 committees and subcommittees. They aim to bring people together through diverse, inclusive and accessible events involving music and community on campus. Of the many other festivals they host, Dillo is the largest student-run festival in the nation with over 12,000 festival attendees. This year, the theme is Return of the Rodeo. It's kind of a reference and a callback to our roots. So Dilliday was founded 50 years ago as uh, kind of a party put on by students from Texas. Um, it was called Armadillo Day. Obviously, there's no dress code for actual Dillo Day. Uh, we want people to kind of express themselves how they do. I'm expecting a lot of cowboy hats this year, yeah. hopefully some <laughs> cowboy boots. While I'm sure you're excited to dress as an iconic cowboy or cowgirl this Saturday, there are some safety precautions you must follow. As a wildcat, you've probably received an email from the university police and resident directors. So though it is most important to have fun, make sure you stay safe as well. Yeah, for safety in general, I think we would just like to refer people to the Smart Dillo campaign that um, Student Affairs put together. 
they have like a very multifaceted, pretty drawn out campaign. And it has like actually really fun um, visuals that are also designed um, in kind of a rodeo theme. So I think we would just refer people to that campaign. Something else to keep in mind is that COVID positivity rates have been quite high in the past few weeks, reaching 9.28% last week. Because we don't want to repeat another digital Dilla day, perhaps taking a test or wearing a mask before may be a good idea. So we are encouraging attendees to get tested. And obviously, if you do have COVID, do not come to Dilla day. Um, because we want to keep this community as safe as we possibly can. All of our attendees, obviously Northwestern, are already required to be vaccinated, but I would like to note that we're also um, requiring that all guests that Northwestern students bring must be vaccinated, and we check uh, proof of vaccination when we hand out their wristbands. You must be wondering, why should I go? Connor says, why not? Most of your friends are probably going, and this year, Dillo will be special, or at least I'm hoping so, especially because it's the 50th year. Nicole and Connor, tell us more. Yeah, I mean, Dilla Day is like truly one of the most, if not the most exciting days uh, to attend Northwestern. I mean, besides the artists, we have student art, we have vendors, we have stuff like that. So even if music isn't someone's favorite thing, there's just a little bit of something for everyone on the Lakeville. I genuinely think you're going to wake up on May 21st and just be incredibly excited for like what the day holds for you. I'm like, I still look back at my last in-person Dillo in 2019, and I like, I think very, very fondly on those memories, and I know a lot of other people um, who do as well. The deadline to purchase your tickets is close. Oh, every single attendee needs to register for wristband. Wristband registration closes on uh, May 20th, Friday, May 20th at noon. If you come, which I know you will, make sure to bring a wristband, money for food, an empty water bottle, sunscreen, a well-charged phone, rain gear, and some cool shades. Don't bring any sharp objects, glass bottles, and basically anything illegal or too valuable that you might lose. But feel free to invite friends and guests to enjoy Dillo as much as you can. For more information, check out DilloDay.com and make sure to buy your tickets. Jung and Jennifer Kim, WNUR News. You're listening to WNUR News. It's 6.06 p.m. Central. Moving on to arts and entertainment. With an abundance of live concerts ongoing this spring and summer, and now with the onset of Dillo Day, the Northwestern student body has had plenty of opportunities to get involved in the area's live music scene. But the unfortunate consequence of seeing these live performances is a phenomenon known as post-concert depression. Pari Pradhan takes a look at this with a story that aired earlier this month. Chances are, if you're a Northwestern student who is active on literally any social media platforms, last night all your feeds were flooded by concert footage. There was the Flo Millie A&O show, an Omar Apollo concert, a Saba concert, all in all, it was a big night for the music scene in Chicago. Of course, nothing beats the experience of being in the pit at the Riviera or Aragon, the thumping bass reverberating through your chest, the sweaty press of all the bodies around you as you sway, jump, 
and dance to your favorite songs. But what comes after those two to three hours of bliss? Lianne Krenziap, a psychometrician at Ateneo de Davao University in the Philippines, defines post-concert depression as, quote, the sudden, overwhelming, and rapid downward crash, characterized by a feeling of recurring emptiness, disappointment, longing, and heartache after a very long-awaited, fulfilling high moment. It's the crash back down to earth after the three-hour high you experience at a concert. If you've ever found yourself unable to move on from a performance, constantly reminiscing and flipping through the photos you took, chances are you've experienced this phenomenon. I personally got back home from the Omar Apollo concert at the Riviera last night and proceeded to spend two hours lying on the floor in the middle of my dorm room in my brand new merch, going through my videos to try and relive the fun I was having just a few hours prior. Generally, people experience a sensation of euphoria during and immediately after the concert, followed by an extended period of sadness or anxiety, sometimes lasting weeks. Yap conducted a study analyzing BTS fans' experiences with post-concert depression and found that 90% of concert goers experienced extreme elation immediately following the show. However, two weeks after the concert, 58.5% said they felt separation anxiety from the artist, 49% had difficulty concentrating, 37% lacked energy, and 44% felt generally sadder than usual. So while post-concert depression is not considered an official medical disorder as per the DSM-5, which is a primary resource used for psychological diagnoses worldwide, and cannot be compared to experiences of actual depression or other mental disorders, it is a clear cultural and social phenomenon and a shared experience for music lovers of all sorts. I talked to other students about their experiences with post-concert depression. Weinberg sophomore MJ attended the Omar Apollo concert last night and shared his thoughts from the morning after. He said, quote, It's the morning after the Omar Apollo concert and I woke up with the sensation of fulfillment and happiness, but also sadness at the same time, because I'm not going to be living the experience of being in front of Omar again for a long time. Beanin and Weinberg sophomore Joy Cho also shared her experience after attending a Blackpink concert in Japan in 2020. The day before the concert, I was broken up with uh, my boyfriend at the time of two years. So I was having the most horrible day of my life, but I was so excited about the concert that I kind of just forgot about it and got ready for the concert. And I remember so vividly that the moment when Blackpink stepped on stage, I was crying so hard, so aggressively, and just could not believe that we were breathing the same air. And I had like the world's most magical day and um, when the concert ended, all I could think about was, oh my gosh, they're real people and I'll never get to experience that again because afterwards COVID had hit and that made the entire post-concert depression experience so much more difficult and all I could think about was how beautiful they were in person and how impactful their music was to me at the time and that live experience was something that I cherish so much till this day and honestly I feel like I never got out of the post-concert depression and the only way to really alleviate that for me was watching so many videos of like their interviews or performances everything I could just get a glimpse of that same feeling I got at the concert. 
While post-concert depression can be difficult to deal with, the best way to move forward is to keep enjoying the music you love and going out to see more live shows. In my opinion, one of the biggest perks of living so close to Chicago is the opportunity to engage in its bustling live music scene. Whether it's big name stars like Olivia Rodrigo or Harry Styles, or smaller local bands, there are plenty of chances for you to get out there and dance your heart out to your favorite artists. For WNUR News, this was Pari Pradhan. Queer Gen Zers have claimed pirates, but did 18th century pirates claim queer people? Reporter Passbaum looks into the historical accuracy of HBO Max's Our Flag Means Death. A heads up before I get into the details. This story contains spoilers for the show Our Flag Means Death. The pirate tag, meaning bisexual pirate, has over 125 million views on TikTok. The popularity of this tag doesn't surprise me. Pirates are a bit of a symbol in the queer community. There is no definitive answer as to why, but I'm guessing it has something to do with the fact that pirates reject societal norms and expectations, live removed from the rest of society, usually do not marry, live with groups of people who are largely of the same sex, and, while living away from their biological families, create new communities and networks of support. One might even call these found families. David Jenkins and Taika Waititi play into this phenomenon in their HBO Max series Our Flag Means Death. I know that pirates are a part of modern gay culture, so I wanted to look into to what extent gay people were a part of 18th century pirate culture and the 18th century in general. Before we get into the historical accuracy, some background on the show. Our Flag Means Death, which has one season so far, follows lovable, well-meaning, wealthy British aristocrat Steed Bonnet as he leaves his monotonous life and loveless marriage to fulfill his dream of becoming a pirate. He acquires a boat, a crew, and soon a list of accidental enemies. One of these enemies, a famed pirate who goes by the name Blackbeard but whose given name is Edward, becomes a love interest for Steed about halfway through season one. Several members of Steed's crew are also canonically queer. Lucius is visibly effeminate and is a committed relationship with a fellow male crew member, and Jim is non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. Queer characters are woven into the plot of this flag means death. None of them are singled out for their queerness, and no one's gender or sexuality becomes their defining character trait. This is refreshing after witnessing countless token gay characters and queer characters whose storylines center around their coming out stories in recent years. However, as I mentioned, while watching the show, I wondered how historically accurate the characters' acceptance and support for their queer crewmates was. The show is somewhat of a utopia for queer representation and its escapism and unapologetic queerness, but it does not ignore the politics of gender and sexuality of the 18th century. For example, one character, when asking Steed about the nature of his relationship with Ed, says, I wouldn't be ashamed of this acknowledges that same-sex sexual relationships were accepted but not the norm. However, other characters ignore the non-normative nature of same-sex romantic relationships. When Steed returns to his wife toward the end of the season and she asks who Steed is in love with, he states, The scene is centered around Steed's ability to find love, so Steed's wife is only glad that he is happy and does not acknowledge the fact that it is with a man. 
To learn more about the extent to which Jenkins and Waititi's portrayal of same-sex sexual and romantic relationships in Western 18th century society is historically accurate, I spoke to Northwestern professor Lane Fenrick. He is an Americanist historian of sexuality studies. I wondered if you could give some insight into what the expectations were of male-male and female-female relationships in the 18th century in America and England. Well, that's a big question. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest answer to that is that adult people of either sex were expected to marry and procreate. Um, but if they did that um, at a certain point, then, that, then there was all kinds of space for them to have very intense emotional and even physical relationships with other people of the same sex. Possibly surprising um, for a contemporary listener is that, um, even for men, right, that it was understood that um, men's primary emotional relationships were going to be with other men, um, even after they married. What restrictions were put on these same-sex relationships, platonic or otherwise, in the 18th century? So it's only when they invert their gender expectations like the Mollies, um, or on the, those rare instances where a male couple or a female couple chooses to live with a same-sex partner rather than marrying an opposite-sex partner. That's the line, right, mm -hmm. where they would start to, uh, to draw attention. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, the, their world was very, very different than ours. I want to ask a little bit more about the Mollies that you mentioned. Okay. Um, one of the crew members on our flag means death. His name is Lucius, and he's visibly effeminate and openly attracted to other men. The other people in the show don't criticize him for that. He's accepted, and it, while it is part of his character, it's not a, a point of contention, and he's not made fun of for it. Can you tell me a little bit about the development of experiences of and reactions to visibly effeminate men in the 18th century? In the 18th century, England, and especially London, um, has this very visible, what I would call proto-gay subculture uh, um, centered around the Mollies, um, these cross-dressing men um, who worked in uh, cafes or bars, brothels, um, and with whom straight presenting, right, what we would call straight presenting men could have sex, could have relationships. Um, and the Mollies definitely understood and were understood by other people to be, to be different. But the straight appearing, straight acting men that they um, had sex with didn't. It doesn't mean that, that people approved of those relationships because they condemned them, but they didn't really condemn them in any differently than they condemned men having sex with female prostitutes. My main takeaway from the interview with Professor Fenrick is mostly as expected. Our flag means death is somewhat, but not completely, historically accurate. The widespread acceptance of same-sex relationships in the show is mostly characteristic of the time period, especially considering the fact that the characters have almost no opportunities to interact with women. The one unrealistic aspect of representation in the show is the reception of Lucius. As Professor Fenwick outlined, 18th century Brits did not approve of effeminate men or anyone who did not conform to traditional gender norms. Unlike the Mollies in London, Lucius is not treated differently because of his gender presentation. The treatment of Lucius as the same as other crewmates feeds into the utopia that the show builds. While entertaining, the universe created is unrealistic. It is difficult to balance creating historically accurate media that is also entertaining and uplifts marginalized people. Our Flag Means Death attempts to do so with their cast of queer characters, as does Bridgerton with their racially diverse cast. I asked Professor Fenrick his thoughts as a historian. It's sort of the Hamilton effect, right? I mean, like, one of the ways in which you make it obvious um, how history was actually constructed um, and, and, and in terms of inequalities is by 
you know, doing something like this where you say like, well, okay, let's go back and, and, and pretend that it looked some completely different way. And that's both very enjoyable. And also I think shines a whole lot of light on not just the inequalities in that period, but the inequalities in contemporary society. So 18th century pirate ships were likely not the queer utopia portrayed on Our Flag Means Death, but I will happily continue my emotional investment in Stephen Ed's relationship. Our Flag Means Death showed me that even if a show is not completely historically accurate, it can provide an important escape from everyday life. And as Professor Fenwick said, it can bring attention to the problems of today's society, such as the treatment of queer people. For WNUR News, I'm Paul Spock. And now for Northwestern's Weekly Sports Roundup. Spring is finally in the air, and things are starting to get serious for some teams as the postseason draws near. Here's your update for all things NU Athletics this week with Zach McCrary. Hi, I'm Zach McCrary. Here's your NU Sports Report for this week. Let's get started with the baseball team. Their final homestand was this weekend, where they hosted the 27-16 Purdue Boilermakers. Friday started out well with runs batted in by Anthony Calarco and O'Donnell in the first, but a fourth-inning rally by Purdue put the Boilermakers back on top. Cats fell 14-8, but in Game 2 they brought it back with an 11-1 blowout highlighted by a three-run home run from Tommy DeLise, his eighth of the year. Sunday, Senior Day, brought another loss for Northwestern. They lost 2-7. On Tuesday, they hosted 14th-ranked Notre Dame, where they lost again 4-14. They're now 22-26 overall and 8-13 in conference, good for 9th place right now. They have one series left against Minnesota, who lies at the bottom of the Big Ten standings. They need a series sweep in order to have any hope of making the Big Ten tournament in Omaha next Wednesday. Action starts in Minneapolis at 6.30 Central tomorrow night. On the other side of the battery, as it were, the first-ranked softball team fell in the Big Ten tournament semifinals to Michigan 2-1. It was a low-scoring game, with the only score until the seventh inning being Ayanna Lindsay's scoring from third on a wild pitch. In the seventh and final inning, however, Michigan's third baseman Taylor Bump hit a two-run homer to left, lifting the Wolverines to the championship game, where they would lose to the Nebraska Cornhuskers 3-1 in eight innings. But despite the loss in East Lansing, the Wildcats are ranked 9th nationally, high enough to host the NCAA Tournament Regionals at the J in Evanston. They'll face Oakland, Notre Dame, and McNeese State University in a double elimination regional starting on Friday and running until Sunday. Northwestern will play their first game against Oakland on Friday at 3.30 Central on ESPN+. Speaking of national championships, the Northwestern women's lacrosse team have been going so good so far in the NCAA women's lacrosse tournament. The number six cats are host to the first two rounds. They made quick work of Central Michigan on Friday, punching in eight quick goals in the first quarter. Aaron Koikendall and Jill Girardi both had hat tricks in the 22-7 win. Second round on Sunday, Cats played their Big Ten comrades, the Michigan Wolverines. Northwestern scored five unanswered goals in the first quarter, with Girardi and Lauren Gilbert scoring two each in just that period. Lauren Gilbert had the most goals on the day with four. Quakendall racked up three assists to go alongside her two own goals. Cats won 15-12. Their quarterfinal game will be in Evanston against the number 4 Syracuse Orange. Game time is 4 p.m. Central tomorrow. You can watch on ESPNU. 
And finally, in a little bit of off-season action, former Ohio State Buckeye and Chattanooga assistant coach Brittany Johnson has been named new assistant coach for the Northwestern women's basketball team. Johnson was the first ever high school player in Illinois to score 4,000 career points and was a strong shooter for the Buckeyes, scoring the third most three-pointers ever in the Big Ten at 216. That wraps up your NU Sports Report for this week. For more information about upcoming games, as well as how you can watch the Wildcats live, which you may well want to do in person with all the national championships going on, visit www.nusports.com. I'm Zach McCrary, WNUR News. You're listening to WNUR News. It's 6.24 p.m. Central. In the headlines today, Northwestern's Dillo Day Music Festival will occur this Saturday, with precautions released from the university on both the status of COVID and safety measures at a Tuesday night virtual community discussion. Northwestern's Vice President for Operations, Luke Figora, acknowledged the recent uptick in cases, which has reached a record high positivity rate of 9.28% last Friday, but said there will be no changes to in-person activities. Due to a wave of mass shootings that have occurred across the U.S. over the weekend, Northwestern Police Deputy Chief Eric Chin said that a series of safety measures, including bag checks and an emergency operations center, will be implemented throughout Dillo Day. A Chicago Public Schools Inspector General's report released information today relating to the automatic enrollment of CPS students in the Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps classes over the last two academic years. Hundreds of CPS freshmen were enrolled in the program, which was supposed to be voluntary. Principals within the school system blamed part of the problem on budget concerns, as JROTC can serve as a physical education requirement, diverting gym teacher pay from CPS to the U.S. Department of Defense. Today, the Wall Street Journal reported the reason behind a China Eastern flight's crash in the mountains on the way to Guangzhou from Kunming in March. The black box revealed that someone in the cockpit brought the plane down, whether that be the pilot or someone else on board. There were no reported abnormalities from radio transmissions from the cockpit prior to the plane's deviation from cruising altitude. And now for the weather. Evanston has experienced a rainy Wednesday. It's currently 54 degrees and cloudy in Evanston. Winds are low hanging around 4 miles per hour. Tonight, showers will dissipate and temperatures will stay around 54. Tomorrow, temperatures will jump to the high 70s, low 80s, with sunny skies and a low chance of precipitation. Winds will spike to 13 miles per hour in the evening, and this weekend's Dillo Day goers might experience a few showers and temperatures hovering around 60 degrees on Saturday. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these 
and other stories of the day on our website, wnur.news. That's wnur.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Sarah Kadora, and our reporters are Jong-un Jennifer Kim, Pari Pradhan, Pas Baum, and Zach McCrary. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Iris Swarthow. Thanks for listening. Tune in this Friday for WNUR News' special broadcast, Tangential NU. During this hour-long special, we'll cover stories that are tangentially related to Northwestern staples, like a cat named Willard, who co-authored a physics paper at Michigan State University. That'll be this Friday, May 20th, from 6 to 7 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.